Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this uh, LSE Ideas uh, lecture uh, on United States, Dangerous Nation, uh, question mark. <laughs> My name is Arne Westad. I'm the um, co-director of the LSE Ideas Center with Professor Michael Cox, who is also here tonight. It's a great pleasure for us on behalf of LSE Ideas and on behalf of the school to welcome Dr. Robert Kogan, uh, Kagan to, to the LSE. Uh, Robert Kagan is Senior Associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He served in the State Department from 1984 to 1988 as a member of the policy planning staff, uh, as principal speechwriter for then Secretary of State George P. Schultz, and as Deputy for Policy in the Bureau of Inter-American Affairs. And out of that latter engagement came one of his most well-known books, A Twilight Struggle, American Power and Nicaragua, which was published in 1996. Dr. Kagan has also edited with William Crystal um, a book called Present Dangers, Crisis and Opportunity in American Foreign Policy, a very influential book that appeared in 2000. His probably most well-known book until the one that we are going to discuss today, uh, and a very much acclaimed book, uh, is called Of Paradise and Power, America and Europe in the New World Order that came out in 2003. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for more than 10 weeks and been translated, I just found out, Bob, into 25 languages. This is the book that many of you will remember that postulates that those of us who are from Europe are really from Venus and those who happen to be from the other side of the pond are from Mars. The most recent book that we're going to be hearing more about and then discussing tonight is called Dangerous Nation, America's Place in the World from its earliest, earliest days to the dawn of the 20th century. And this one was published in the fall of 2006. Now, in his 2003 book, Dr. Kagan said that the reasons for the transatlantic divide are deep, long in development, and likely to endure. And in his book from last year, in many ways, he develops on that topic in terms of explaining the origins of American ideas about its place in the international society and indeed of how the international society works in general terms. Let me quote from a review that Professor David Kennedy of Stanford University, who will be lecturing here at the LSE in the spring on a different topic, what David Kennedy wrote about um, Dr. Kagan's book. He said, um, the new book, meaning Dangerous Nation, may be read as an effort to make a systematic historical case for just how deeply rooted and stubbornly durable America's international assertiveness has been, thereby suggesting a legitimating pedigree for Americans, America's current foreign policies, or perhaps creating a critical instrument for radically revising them. Kagan's earlier work was about power. Dangerous Nation deals largely in ideas, especially in the distinctive assumptions, beliefs, and values that have shaped America's singular role in the world. Yet this too, Professor Kennedy ends, is in the end a book about power. And I must say for my own sake that I, to a very high extent, agree with that evaluation. I mean, this book is about the United States as a revolutionary power, uh, for good and bad. And this is an aspect that, to some extent, has influenced my own work on American power in the 20th century as well. The 
transformations that come about as a result of the different ideas, not just in terms of the organization of the international system, but also in terms of how people live their lives, how societies are organized that come out of the United States. Now, what we can discuss, and I'm sure we will after Dr. Kagan's presentation to that, are the effects of this, how they work for, for people in different parts of the world, for what purposes are the revolutionary powers of the United States used. But that said, there is absolutely no denying, I think, for people who want to take the whole history of the 19th and 20th century seriously, that one has to focus on the transformations that have come about because of the ideas and the ideals that the United States has been built on. It's a great pleasure for us tonight to welcome Dr. Robert Kagan to the LSE, and we are much looking forward to hearing your lecture. Bob, Well, thank you so much, Professor Westad. It's a great honor to be here again. I think I was here a few years ago debating Robert Cooper, another dear friend and a great thinker and strategist. Uh, it's an honor for me to be introduced by Professor Westad, for whom I have such uh, great admiration, and I appreciate you all taking time out from what I gather should be your studying for exams. Uh, I suppose any excuse is a good one. Um, I did not write a book called Dangerous Nation, question mark, by the way. <laughs> but most people are surprised, uh, having heard of the title, America, Dangerous Nation, well, it's not called America, but Dangerous Nation, uh, and to hear that I, in that book, am not discussing George Bush's America, uh, or even the Cold War America, or post-Cold War America, but an America... Uh, going back, well, really to before there was an America, uh, except as a territory in the 17th century and onward. Uh, but my argument in this book, and I, by the way, did not write it to justify the Bush administration's foreign policy. I'm not sure it does or doesn't, but I can only assure you that I began writing this book long before I had any knowledge of who George W. Bush was and finished most of it before he started. So any coincidental justification or lack thereof is indeed uh, coincidental. Uh, but what I want to suggest is, and I know that this is a prime topic in Europe and, and elsewhere in the world these days, uh, that contrary to one's wishes, perhaps, uh, certainly to many perhaps in this audience's wishes, uh, that what you have seen in the United States over the past uh, few years is some radical aberration uh, from the wonderful American foreign policy that preceded it, and that as soon as the evil Mr. Bush departs from the scene, we will return to the wonderful American foreign policy that we all imagined it once had. Uh, my argument is, of course, specific decisions that a president like Bush makes uh, can have an enormous impact, uh, both positive and negative, on the world. Um, but the broad traditions that inform American foreign policy are not really that susceptible to change by one election or, or another. That there are some broad continuities uh, in American foreign policy, and not just since World War II, and not just since even Woodrow Wilson, as some people might suggest, but really going back uh, to the very beginning. And that there are I, both ideas and accretions of power partly driven by those ideas, 
that between the two of them, the power on the one hand and the ideas on the other uh, generally push the United States in a broad direction so that there can be deviations 10 degrees in one way, 10 degrees in the other. Uh, there can be singular events that have a very unexpected impact or a dramatic impact, but the broad traditions, the broad impulses that shape American foreign policy are fairly consistent. Now, these days in the United States, and in a certain indirect sense in the world, uh, we've been having a national debate, or global debate perhaps, over the direction of American foreign policy. Beyond the obvious difficulties in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's a broader sense among many Americans, certainly, and many around the world, that the nation has gone or been led astray, that we've become, we Americans have become too militaristic, too idealistic, too arrogant, too bullying, that we've become an empire. Certainly much of the world views the United States as dangerous, and in response, many in the United States and around the world call for the United States to return to its foreign policy traditions as if that would provide the answer. Well, would it? What exactly are America's foreign policy traditions? Well, one tradition is this kind of debate that Americans are now having today and which they've been having ever since the birth of the nation. When Patrick Henry accused supporters of the Constitution of conspiring to turn the young republic into a, quote, great and mighty empire. We must have an army and a navy and a number of things, he complained. When the American spirit was in its youth, Patrick Henry said in 1787, the language of America was different. Liberty, sir, was then the primary object. Now, it's worth recalling that the people that Patrick Henry was accusing of conspiring to turn this pristine republic into a great empire were the supporters of the Constitution, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and Benjamin Franklin. The debate at that time was between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists won, as we know, the Anti-Federalists uh, led by Patrick Henry and some others lost. Well, today the United States has an army and a navy and a number of things and a mightier empire than, uh, I use the term advisedly, empire, than Henry could ever have imagined. But even after two centuries of accumulating this vast power and influence over an increasingly wide expanse of the globe, Americans remain puzzled about their identity and their place in the world. And no less a figure and no less a sort of a giant of American foreign policy than James Schlesinger, once Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Energy, uh, a paragon of the uh, foreign policy establishment, expressed a very common view that Americans, without really wishing it, have acquired an unprecedented global preeminence and that the United States was a most unusual, not to say odd country, to have this global responsibility thrust upon it. Now, this is how most Americans prefer to see ourselves. If we're not quite the city upon a hill, once portrayed by the school books, seeking only to be left alone in our isolated wilderness, the Greta Garbo of nations, we do see ourselves as fundamentally a status quo power. We seek ordered stability in the world. If at times we venture forth and embroil ourselves in international affairs, it's because we've been attacked or because some dangerous revolutionary force has emerged that it threatens to upset that order, 
whether it's German Nazis, Japanese imperialists, Soviet communists, or more recently, Islamic jihadists. We are the reluctant sheriff, to use a phrase coined by Richard Haas a few years ago, with our boots up on the desk until the next gang rise into town. We never choose war, or almost never. War is thrust upon us. As John Kerry said in the 2004 electoral season, the United States of America never goes to war because we want to. We only go to war because we have to. That is the standard of our nation. Really? <laughs> that self-image, with its yearning for some imagined lost innocence, hardly matches the record of American behavior stretching back to the nation's founding. It seems possible to recall that the city upon a hill was an expansionist power from the moment the first pilgrims set foot on the continent and that it never stopped expanding territorially, commercially, culturally, geopolitically over the next four centuries. Even at America's supposedly Edenic origins, Anglo-American colonists were busy driving a Native American population of millions of off of millions of acres of land and almost out of existence. From the 1740s through the 1820s, and then in another burst in the 1840s, Americans expanded relentlessly westward from the Alleghenies to the Ohio Valley, past the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific, southward into Mexico and the Floridas, northward toward Canada, pushing off the continent, not only Indians, but the great empires of France and Spain and Russia and Great Britain, which uh, alone managed to hold onto a foothold on the North American continent. By the way, Americans for many years referred to this as filling the empty spaces, um, not as any kind of actual con conquest. And may I say, given the, some theories that have become prevalent, that this often violent territorial expansion was directed not by redneck Jacksonians, but by Eastern gentlemen expansionists like Franklin, Jefferson, Washington, and John Quincy Adams. Our neighbors, America's neighbors, and, most, and more distant observers saw Americans not as a people who sought ordered stability, but as persistent disturbers of the status quo. As the ancient Corinthians said of the Athenians in Thucydides' great work, they were incapable of either living a quiet life or of allowing anyone else to do so. 19th century Americans were called by French diplomats at the times a numerous warlike enemy to be feared. And in 1817, John Quincy Adams reported from London, and this is where I get the title from my book, the universal feeling of Europe in witnessing the gigantic growth of our population and power is that we shall, if united, become a very dangerous member of the Society of Nations. That's 1817, folks. The United States was dangerous not only because it was expansionist, but because its revolutionary ideology, revolutionary certainly at the time, republicanism on the one hand and liberalism on the other, threatened the established conservative order of that era. Austria's Prince Metternich rightly feared what would happen to the moral force, as he put it, of Europe's conservative monarchies when this flood of evil doctrines was married to the military, economic, and political power Americans seemed destined to acquire. By the end of the 19th century, the concern proved amply justified. 
following a quite voluntary American war against a tottering Spanish monarchy, the United States moved on to hegemonic dominance in the Western Hemisphere and commercial and cultural penetration of the world. I think it would be extraordinary had Americans acquired all this territory, penetrated all those markets, and amassed all that power and influence without really wishing for it. But from the very beginning, Americans did wish for it. The leaders of the young, fragile, vulnerable republic imagined that their nation was a Hercules in the cradle, was Hamilton's phrase. With 20 years of peace, George Washington predicted in his famous farewell address, for which this phrase is not remembered, the United States would acquire the power to enable us in a just cause to bid defiance to any power on earth. Jefferson foresaw a vast empire of liberty spreading west, north, and south across the continent. Hamilton believed America would ere long assume an attitude correspondent with its great destinies, majestic, efficient, and operative of great things. A noble career lies before it. John Quincy Adams often cited by people, by the way, as the quintessential American isolationist, nothing could be further from the truth, considered the United States destined by God and by nature to be the most populous and powerful people ever combined under one social contract. And Americans' aspirations only grew as its power grew. In the 1850s, William Henry Seward, who, was, who would be Lincoln's Secretary of State, predicted the United States would become the world's dominant power, the greatest of existing states, greater than any that has ever existed. The 1850s. A century later, Dean Acheson, president at the creation of an American-dominated world order, described the United States as the locomotive at the head of mankind, and the rest of the world was the caboose. In another half century, President Bill Clinton was calling America the indispensable nation. What Metternich understood and what others would learn time and again was that the United States was not a status quo power, but a revolutionary power. Its natural tendencies were toward movement, not repose, always advancing, rarely pulling back, consistently expanding its participation and influence in the world in ever-widening arcs. It was a nation with almost boundless ambition and a potent sense of national honor for which it was willing to go to war. It exhibited the kind of spiritedness and even fierceness in defense of home and hearth and belief that the ancient Greeks called thumos. It was an uncommonly impatient nation, often dissatisfied with the way things were, almost always convinced of the possibility of beneficial change and of its own role as a catalyst. It was also a nation with a strong martial tradition. 18th and 19th century Americans loved peace, but they also believed in the potentially salutary effects of war. No man in the nation desires peace more than I, Henry Clay declared on the eve of the war with Great Britain in 1812, a war, I might say, fought almost entirely for honor. But I prefer the troubled ocean of war demanded by the honor and independence of the country with all its calamities and desolations to the tranquil, putrescent pool of ignominious peace. Decades later, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., the famed jurist who had fought and been wounded three times in the Civil War, observed that war, when you are at it, is horrible and dull. It is only when time has passed that you see that its message was divine. Modern Americans don't talk this way anymore, needless to say, but it is not obvious that they are very different in their attitudes towards war, regardless of what they may think of themselves. 
the American martial tradition has remained remarkably durable, especially when compared to most other democracies in the post-World War II era. From 1989 to 2003, a 14-year period spanning three very different presidencies, the United States deployed large numbers of combat troops or engaged in extended campaigns of aerial bombing and missile attacks on nine different occasions. In Panama, 1989, Somalia, 1992, Haiti, 1994, Bosnia, 1995 and 96, Kosovo, 1999, Afghanistan, 2001, and three times in Iraq, not one, 1991, 1998, and 2003. That's an average of one significant military intervention every year and a half, a greater frequency than at any time in America's history. Americans have always revered their military leaders, from Washington to Grant to Eisenhower to Colin Powell. And even today, there is scarcely a nation in the world whose political, and this includes China and Russia as well, whose political parties, both Republicans and Democrats, so frequently consider nominating generals for the presidency. Americans stand alone, or almost alone, in believing in the utility and even necessity of war as a means of obtaining justice. Transatlantic polling surveys commissioned by the German Marshall Fund, of which I'm pleased to be uh, an employee, consistently show that 80% of Americans agree with the proposition that, quote, under some conditions, war is necessary to obtain justice. When Americans are asked that question, 80% agree. In France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, and throughout the continent, only 30% agree. So how do Americans reconcile the gap between their preferred self-image and this historical reality? The answer is with difficulty. Americans have always been uncomfortable with their power, their ambition, and their willingness to use force to achieve their objectives. What the historian Gordon Wood has called their deeply rooted republicanism has always made Americans suspicious of power, even their own. Their Enlightenment liberalism, with its belief in universal rights and self-determination, makes Americans uncomfortable using their influence, even in what they regard as a good cause, to deprive others of their freedom of action. Americans' religious conscience makes them look disapprovingly on ambition, both personal and national. Their modern democratic worldview conceives of honor as something antiquated and undemocratic. These misgivings rarely stop Americans from pursuing their goals or quench their ambitions or their desire for honor any more than their suspicion of wealth stops them from trying to accumulate it. But they do make Americans unwilling or unable to see themselves as others see them and as, in fact, they really are. Indeed, Americans construct more comforting narratives of their past they create an idealized foreign policy against which to measure their present behavior. Americans hope that we can either return to the policies of that imagined past or approximate that imagined ideal to recapture our lost innocence. That is easier than facing the hard truth that for good and for ill, America's expansiveness, its intrusiveness, its tendency toward political, economic, and strategic dominance is not some aberration from their true nature but was imprinted in the nation's DNA. Now, that DNA is not entirely unique. In important ways, there is nothing exceptional about Americans. Like other peoples throughout history, Americans from the beginning have sought power of all kinds, 
power to achieve prosperity, independence, and security, and power to pursue less tangible goals. As American power increased, so too did American ambitions, both noble and venal. Growing power changes nations, just as it changes people. It changes their perceptions of the world and their place in it. It increases their sense of entitlement and reduces their tolerance for obstacles that stand in their way. Power even changes a nation's perceptions of its interests, as well as the threats to those interests. Lord Palmerston's famous dictum that a nation has no permanent friends, only permanent interests, may be true in some abstract sense, but a nation's perceptions of its interests are not fixed. They expand as power expands, and they can contract as power contracts. When Americans acquired the unimaginably vast territory of Louisiana at the dawn of the 19th century, doubling the size of their young nation with lands that would take decades to settle, they did not rest content, but immediately looked for still more territory beyond their new borders. As one Spanish diplomat observed, since the Americans have acquired Louisiana, they appear unable to bear any barriers around them. It's doubtful whether there's really any such thing as a status quo power, but America has certainly never been one. For in addition to the common human tendency to seek greater power and influence over the world around them, Americans have also been driven outward into the world by the potent revolutionary ideology of liberalism that they adopted at the nation's birth. This liberalism, I think, did make Americans exceptional and exceptionally expansive. Liberalism, to a large extent, fueled the prodigious territorial and commercial expansion in the 18th and 19th centuries that made the United States the first, dominant, first the dominant power in North America and then a world power. And it did so by elevating the rights of the individual over the state, by declaring that all people had a right to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness, and by insisting that it was the government's primary job to safeguard those rights. American political leaders had little choice but to permit and even support territorial and commercial claims made by their citizens, even when these claims encroached on the lands or waters of others, even when they violated treaties that had been solemnly entered into, for instance, with Indian tribes. Other 18th and 19th century governments ruled by absolute monarchs permitted national expansion when it served personal or dynastic interests, and like Napoleon in the New World, curtailed it when it did not. When the King of England tried, among other things, to end the territorial and commercial expansionism of his Anglo-American subjects, they rebelled and established a government that would not stand in their way. The most important foreign policy statement in American history, in my view, was not the Farewell Address or the Monroe Doctrine, but the Declaration of Independence and the Enlightenment ideals it placed at the heart of American nationhood. Putting those ideals into practice was a radical new departure in government, and it inevitably produced a new kind of foreign policy. For liberalism did not only drive territorial and commercial expansion, it also provided an overarching ideological justification for it. By expanding territorially, commercially, politically, culturally, Americans believed they were bringing both modern civilization and the blessings of liberty to Indians, French, Spaniards, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, North Africans, and whoever, whomever else they touched in their search for opportunity. As Thomas Jefferson once told an Indian leader, we desire above all things, brother, to instruct you in whatever we know ourselves. We wish you to learn all our arts and to make you wise and wealthy. To which the Indian leader replied, 
thank you, brother. We wish that you would give us our land back. (laughs) In one form or another, Americans have been making that offer of instruction to peoples around the world ever since. Americans from the beginning viewed their world exclusively through the lens of liberalism and measured it exclusively according to the assumptions of liberalism. These included, above all, belief in what the Declaration called the self-evident universality of certain basic truths, not only that all men were created equal endowed by God with inalienable rights, but also that the only legitimate and just governments were those that derived their powers from the consent of the governed and that when any form of government became destructive of these ends, I'm quoting from the Declaration, it was the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Such a worldview does not admit of the possibility of alternative truths. Americans over the centuries accepted the existence of cultural differences that influenced other peoples to rule themselves differently. They did business with people who ruled themselves differently. They even sometimes protected governments that ruled themselves in an autocratic fashion, but they never accepted the legitimacy of despotic governments, no matter how deeply rooted those governments might be in their culture. And because they did not accept their legitimacy, they viewed them as transitory. And wherever Americans looked in the world, therefore, they saw both the possibility and the desirability of change. And they saw themselves as a potential catalyst believing they had both the ability and at times the obligation to hasten the world's progress toward the liberal ideal. In this respect, Americans have been exceptional, I think. For unlike most other nations, they evaluated themselves and even defined their national identity in part by how well their behavior in the world accorded with their professed beliefs. As William Appleman Williams once commented, Americans believe their nation has meaning only as it realizes natural right and reason throughout the universe. He did not mean that as a compliment, by the way. John Quincy Adams was pleased that Europe considered the United States dangerous. The sources of ideas that, quote, made the throne of every European monarch rock under him as with the throes of an earthquake. The great struggle of the epic, James Madison declared in the 1820s, is between liberty and despotism. The idea of liberty was written in the stars, as Hamilton put it, and therefore that struggle could ultimately have only one outcome. It was a short step from that conviction to the belief that the interests of America were practically indistinguishable from the interests of the world. The cause of America is the cause of all mankind, Benjamin Franklin said at the time of the Revolution. Decades later, the great novelist Herman Melville wrote that for Americans... National selfishness is unbounded philanthropy, for we cannot do good to America, but we give alms to the world. It was another short step to the belief that the United States had a special, even unique role to play in this evolution of mankind. The rights asserted by our forefathers, William Seward declared, were not peculiar to themselves. They were the common rights of mankind, and therefore the United States had a duty to renovate the condition of mankind and lead the way to the universal restoration of of power to the governed everywhere in the world. This persistent belief has stoked America's thumos and provided justification for its military power. 20th century American aspirations have not been more modest. 
The dominant American paradigm of liberalism and power has faced its share of domestic critics in the United States as it does today. From left and right have come warnings against arrogance, hubris, excessive idealism, and imperialism. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, conservatives in the Republican tradition of Patrick Henry worried about the effect at home of such expansive policies abroad. They feared correctly that a big foreign policy generally meant a big federal government, which in their eyes meant impingements on the rights and freedoms of the individual. The conservatives of the slaveholding South were in many ways the great realists of the 19th century. They opposed moralism in foreign policy abroad, rightly fearing it would be turned inward against them and the institution of slavery. As Jefferson Davis put it, we are not engaged in a quixotic fight for the rights of man. Our struggle is for inherited rights. We are conservative. So there has always been a competing tradition, and not just in the slaveholding South. At the end of the century, when Americans were enthusiastically pushing outward into the Western Hemisphere and across the Pacific into Asia, critics like Grover Cleveland, long forgotten, I won't say justly forgotten, Secretary of State, Walter Q. Gresham, I'm sure the name trips off your tongues easily, warned that every nation, and especially every strong nation, must sometimes be conscious of an impulse to rush into difficulties that do not concern it except in a highly imaginary way. To restrain the indulgence of such a propensity is not only the part of wisdom, but a duty we owe to the world as an example of the strength, the moderation, and the beneficence of popular government. But just as progressivism and big government have generally triumphed in domestic affairs, so too has the liberal approach to the world beyond America's shores. Patrick Henry failed to defeat the Constitution. Southern realism lost to Northern idealism. The critics of liberal foreign policy, whether conservative, realist, or on the left, have rarely managed to steer the United States on a different course. Crusading moralism on behalf of liberal democratic principles and simple humanitarianism did not begin with Woodrow Wilson. In the 19th century, liberalism married to ever greater power produced an ever-increasing tendency to use it, both in pursuit of tangible interests and ambitions and on behalf of liberal ends. It produced an expanding sense of global responsibility and of what constituted honorable behavior. Ultimately, it produced the American decision to go to war with Spain over Cuba, a war of choice if ever there was one. In 1898, Henry Cabot Lodge argued that the United States had a responsibility to defend the Cuban people against Spanish oppression precisely because it had the power to do so. Here we stand motionless, he said, a great and powerful country not six hours away from these scenes of useless bloodshed and destruction, if the United States stands for humanity and civilization, we should exercise every influence of our great country to put a stop to that war which is now raging in Cuba and give to that island once more peace, liberty, and independence. American history textbooks tell us that Lodge was an imperialist. If so, then perhaps Americans are all imperialists. For how many times in recent years have Americans of all political persuasions expressed exactly the same sentiments about Panama, Haiti, Somalia, Bosnia, Kosovo, Rwanda, Iraq, Darfur? The list can go on and on. 
American foreign policy's most astute critics have always understood that liberalism was the engine of American expansionism and hegemonism. At the dawn of the Cold War, when Harry Truman and Dean Acheson were building a post-war international order to conform to American interests and American liberal ideals, the realist founding father, Hans Morgenthau, warned that America's nationalistic universalism, as he termed it, which claimed for one nation and one state the right to impose its own valuations and standards of actions upon all other nations, threatened the peace and safety of the world. Americans had to give up, he said, their dream of remaking the world in their own image and rein in their limitless aspirations for power. The realists were perennial critics of American Cold War strategy, railing against the Truman Doctrine and against the seemingly limitless aspirations of American foreign policy under presidents as different as Jack Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. During the Cold War and much to the dismay of realist thinkers and statesmen, Americans were never willing to accept the legitimacy of the Soviet Union and constantly sought ways to undermine it from within and from without, even at the risk of global instability. The realists pleaded futilely for removing moral and ideological considerations from American foreign policy and for accepting an amoral balance of power, which alone, Reinhold Niebuhr argued, was the basis of whatever justice can be achieved in human relations. But Americans were not and are not comfortable with a balance of power that constrains their actions and limits their liberal aspirations. They prefer, as our friend Mel Leffler has written, a preponderance of power. They would prefer to support free peoples wherever threatened by armed minorities or by outside pressures, as Harry Truman said. They would prefer to pay any price, bear any burden to assure the survival and success of liberty. They are the indispensable nation, and to play such a role requires freedom to maneuver. The American liberal worldview, because it equates American power with the interests of mankind, naturally leads to a belief in the value of American primacy. Back in the 1960s, the historian Stanley Hoffman posed a choice for Americans in the title of his book, Primacy or World Order, and there was a question mark after that. He knew then, and it remains true today, that for Americans, that is not a choice. As the former French foreign minister, Hubert Vedrin, Observed during the Clinton administration, I might add, most great American leaders and thinkers have never doubted for an instance that the United States was chosen by providence as the indispensable nation and that it must remain dominant for the sake of humankind. As the realist scholar Robert W. Tucker observed during the first, first Bush administration, Americans may have sought international order, but for them, International order implies American leadership. That leadership imposes special responsibilities others do not have. But in the American view, it also confers a degree of freedom, freedom others do not enjoy. As a prominent liberal Democrat, former Clinton official, and now supporter of Barack Obama and good friend of mine, Evo Dalder, has put it, Without American primacy or something like it, it is doubtful that the rule of law can be sustained. So when Barack Obama is elected, you have something to look forward to. <laughs> this is why Americans have always had such an ambivalent attitude toward the United Nations. Despite the Americans' role in inventing the institution, the United States has never fully accepted the UN's legitimacy, and least of all of the UN Charter's doctrine of the inviolable sovereign equality of all nations. The United States has always been acutely jealous of its own sovereignty, 
But throughout the Cold War and indeed throughout its history, the United States has been a good deal less concerned about the sovereign inviability of other nations. It has reserved to itself the right to intervene anywhere and everywhere, from the South Pacific to Latin America and the Caribbean to North Africa and the Middle East to East Asia, and finally in the 20th century even in Europe. And although the United States is as capable of self-serving hypocrisy as other nations, it has generally justified intervention in the name of defending or spreading the cause of liberalism. During the Clinton years, critics of American foreign policy, such as Samuel P. Huntington, complained about American arrogance, hubris, and unilateralism. Vedrine labeled the United States the world's hyperpower and asked that it give up unilateralism for multilateralism. According to Huntington, this is in an article in 1998 in Foreign Affairs, the elites of, of countries comprising at least two-thirds of the world's people, Chinese, Russians, Indians, Arabs, Muslims, and Africans, viewed America, Bill Clinton's America, as intrusive, interventionist, exploitative, unilateralist, hegemonical, and hypocritical. Huntington chastised Clinton officials who boast of American power and American virtue, who lecture other countries on the universal validity of American principles, practices, and institutions. The title of his 1998 essay was The Lonely Superpower, for that was the future he saw if Americans did not mend their ways. But, as Tucker pointed out, American unilateralism was nothing new. Huntington and other critics, as usual, were comparing American policy in the post-Cold War era to what Tucker called an imagined past when the United States accepted the constraints of a nascent internationalism. But no such past existed. The United States had been determinedly unilateralist throughout its early history, and even during the heyday of American multilateralism, the Cold War, Tucker observed, the commitment to multilateralism had generally masked the substance of unilateralism. The American acceptance of multilateralism, he writes, has been conditioned by America's ability bordering on a right to act unilaterally. This, too, derived in part from the American liberal worldview, which made Americans suspicious of the judgment and motives of others who did not share America's commitment to universal principles. As Secretary of State Madeleine Albright once remarked, speaking for generations of America's leaders. We stand taller. We see further than other countries into the future. It's Madeleine Albright, folks. So today, we are, Americans are allegedly consumed in a great debate over the nation's foreign policy. But as in the past, this debate is taking place within the narrow parameters of the common liberal paradigm. Even between so-called neoconservatives on the one hand and liberal internationalists on the other, the differences, as David Reif has written, are more in the nature of a family quarrel, the interventionist family, he calls it. Both sides in this debate share a belief in American primacy, including military primacy. Both sides have no difficulty agreeing with the statement of John Kerry during the last presidential campaign that, quote, America must always be the world's paramount military power, but we can magnify our power through alliances. For both sides view multilateralism not as an absolute good, the way many Europeans at least claim to, but from a utilitarian perspective as a way of augmenting American power. 
as uh, Professor Christopher Coker described the Clinton administration's approach and sums up, I would say, the American approach in general, multilateral if possible, unilateral if necessary. This liberal consensus has and will occasionally lead to foreign policy calamities, just as the justly admired containment strategy of Truman and Acheson led America directly into Vietnam. Perhaps someone can invent a foreign policy doctrine that never airs, but we have not discovered it yet. And until then, I think it's worth saying, the broad approach of the United States has accomplished a great deal of good, actually, both for Americans and for the world, just as its adherents have claimed. The result has been some accomplishments of world historical importance. The defeat of Nazism and Japanese imperialism, as well as the contribution to the defeat of Soviet communism. And it has also resulted in some notable failures and disappointments and even disasters. But what I want to emphasize here tonight, and this may be the hardest thing to accept, is that it is not as if the successes were the product of a good America and the failures the product of a bad America. They were all the product of the same America. The achievements as well as the failures derive not from Americans' innocence or purity of motive and not because they abided by an imagined ideal of conduct in the world, but derive from the very qualities that often make Americans queasy. Their willingness to accumulate and use power, their ambition and sense of honor, their spiritedness in defense of both interests and principles, their dissatisfaction with the status quo, and belief in the possibility of change. And throughout, whether succeeding or failing, Americans have remained a dangerous nation in many different senses. Dangerous to tyrannies and tyrannical aggressors, dangerous to those who do not share America's brand of liberalism, dangerous to those who fear America's martial spirit and thumos, dangerous to those including Americans who would prefer an international order not built around a dominant and often domineering America. Whether a different kind of international system or a different kind of America would be preferable is a debate worth having, and I suspect we shall have it. There are, of course, many ideal alternatives to the American foreign policy tradition. I am less sure that the practical alternatives are any more attractive. And I would say that is true of the world system in general. There's no difficulty for any of us to list the failings and flaws of an international system dominated by this kind of superpower. We've certainly seen those flaws on full display in recent years. I think the real question, and I'm not even going to pretend to offer the answer, is whether we really have a better international system that would exist if only the United States stopped behaving as it did. Whether there is, in fact, an ideal multilateral order where all nations behave uh, according to international rules and laws, uh, all nations seek peace, all nations seek the values that we care about. I'm not sure that that world is in the offing, and especially today. But what I would say is, and I say this to Americans and I say this to others, uh, in thinking about the United States, let's shed the illusions, let's stop comparing America to an imagined America that really has never existed, 
Let's address it as it is and decide whether this is something we want to support or not. And I can imagine that the differences of opinion around the world will be great today as they have been ever since America was first born as a nation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bob. Um, I never thought I would hear uh, Bob Kagan citing um, William Appleby Williams approvingly. <laughs> but you did do that here, and you do it in your book as well, if I do not, if I do not misremember. We'll take a um, little bit less than half an hour of Q&A. I just wanted to start up by, and this will not surprise you, I think, um, exactly where you ended up in terms of the political, or you may even term it normative aspects, of, of what is, I think, really a wonderful book. It is one of the most surprising books that I ever read, knowing your, knowing your earlier work. It is also a highly accomplished work of historical scholarship, um, which draws on um, the whole debate about the role in an international sense of 19th century America. But what is the big question is, of course, is this dangerous nation something that you celebrate or something that you worry about? And there is a tension throughout the book with regard to this. Is a dangerous nation, an America that is not like a normal state, something that should be celebrated, something that is good for the international <laughs> society, or is it something that is one of its most basic problems? Now, I wonder if I could try to push you a little bit further on that, because in your book, and even more clearly in your talk, I think your answer to that is, I mean, it goes beyond saying, as we historians like to say, this is how it is. No. You basically say that the role of the United States as troublemaker in the international community has been for the good. Now, Given the situation as it is today, would you be less certain of that? I mean, is there something in you now that, that questions the whole role of the United States as a dangerous nation, as, a, as an international troublemaker, something that you would see as reason to wish that your country would be more like normal countries elsewhere? Thanks for, the, thanks for the easy question. <laughs> I mean, first let me talk about the history a little bit because, um, you know, I, I quote William Appen Williams because he illustrates something, he says something that I think is true. Now, when William Appen Williams says it, his point is, isn't this awful and shouldn't we, like, tear down this America and try to construct something else? Uh, I must say I'm more inclined to say, that's an illusion. I, I don't mean to. I don't want to fall into the trap that you told me not to fall into, which is saying that this is what it is. But I, I, I was very interested in trying to portray it as it is, without necessarily making all the necessary, you know, making sure the reader knew where I approve and where I don't approve. I'm not actually crazy about that kind of history. But nevertheless, if you don't say that you disapprove at every stage, then people assume you do approve, and that's a problem. It is impossible to look at American history and have an unmixed view 
of the virtue of American power. Um, when the United States was a slaveholding nation, which it was for the first 80 years of its existence, uh, one of the objectives of American foreign policy was to expand slavery. Uh, we were, the United States was the rogue power in a world where the more advanced civilized powers were actually trying to obliterate slavery, and the United States was doing everything it could to prevent that from happening. Uh, Pat Buchanan uh, doesn't like today's American foreign policy, but he liked the war against Mexico in the 1840s, because that made America what it is today. Well, in addition to the fact that the United States simply invaded Mexico to steal territory that it wanted, which is an, almost enough, but it also in, in went to war with Mexico to expand slave territory. Uh, that was the purpose of the Mexican-American War. That was why Lincoln opposed it, not because he opposed expansion. He opposed slave expansion. So how can I look at all this and say, it's really, but it's all been for the good, right? It, it's not possible. And I'm not ready to give back Texas either, or the Southwest. Uh, that would surprise us. Well, well, actually, I don't really care that much about that part of the country. I, I'm from the Northeast, so. Uh, but, you know, there is no such thing as, as it's all been for the good, and I don't want to really be that simplistic. Now, I would actually say something that's similar to what you have said and, and that I would agree with. I, I would say the net effect, and boy, that's a really, if you think about what that means, that encompasses a lot of bad news. The net effect of American power on the world has been, I think, unmistakably, the spread of democratic government. I don't think that, it, I wouldn't even say that that's because Americans are so wonderful and they're so generous. I think it's a matter of course that the world will tend to reflect the greatest, the, the, the tendencies of the greatest powers within that world. Uh, but it's no accident, comrades, that as America has become more powerful, the world has become more democratic. Now, is that inherently a good thing? Well, if you're Vladimir Putin, the answer is no. If you're, if you're the Chinese leadership, the answer is no. If you're me, the answer is yes. But there's no, I don't have any proof that that's better. I just think that's better. Um, I, you know, I feel, I, I agree. It, we're born with natural rights and we should be allowed to express them. So I think that is a good. Um, but that has come at the price often of instability. As you know, I don't argue that the United States, what the United States likes to argue about itself is that it is the keeper of international peace. It has not been the keeper of international peace. It has been the protector of a certain kind of order that, of course, benefits the United States and reflects its principles. So that, I think that's as far as I'd want to go. Thanks. Still taking questions up? Yes, please, back there. Um, thank you for your talk. I really appreciate it. I agree with a lot of things. But there's still a danger um, that you said that comes with power um, and the arrogance that comes with power and the self-entitlement that comes with power. And this is what America has been displaying. How can um, we revert that course so the world can see um, that America is truly a country that we can look up as to a leader? Thank you. Take one more question up from the gallery. Yes, at the very back over there. Uh, during the French Revolution, there were those who argued that France should be a new liberal country that should lead by example rather than by military conquest. 
and of course that finished with Napoleon. Um, is it entirely unrealistic to hope that a country steeped in liberal values might take on the mantle of a leader by example rather than a leader by force? Thank you. Two good, broad questions. Bob. You know, America as a fitting world leader that the rest of the world can look up to, um, in some respects, is a very American concept. Um, <laughs> and returning to that is a very American idea. I was really, I must say, I, I was very struck by a speech that Barack Obama gave about maybe four, five, six months ago, his big foreign policy speech, in which he said, the world is longing for the return of American leadership. We must assume again our role as the leader of the free world. Now, I mean, first of all, I thought, this guy, did he go to sleep in the Cold War and forget that we don't, we don't talk about leader of the free world anymore, you know? And does he really imagine that everyone in the world is longing for American leadership? Um, I don't think – there are certain things that, the, that people around the world would like from America. Uh, some people want protection from America. Some people want to do business with America. Some people admire American democracy. Some people don't admire American democracy. Um, but the notion that the world is looking for a leader, I think, is a peculiarly American concept. Well, we can't help it. That's the answer. But <laughs> no, look. I mean, I, I don't want to be. I don't want to be crude about this. The, I think that the world that America. <laughs> okay, is that a question? Um, I think that the world uh, has, at various times, wanted uh, the United States to play an important leadership role, largely for protection. Some parts of the world. I mean, when Europe was in love with the United States, which actually was never quite the case, uh, it was because the, primarily because the United States was protecting Europe from the Soviet Union. Yeah, we're puppets of the world. We're just used, you know, we're just used and abused and then discarded, you know, by the rest of the world. No, I mean, and because America is the strongest democratic power in a world in which there are a great number of democracies. Anyway, you know, I know what you're really asking. The real answer to your question is as soon as George W. Bush leaves, everything will be fine. <laughs> no, I actually think that that's true. <laughs> no, I think, I think that, you know, I do think that we are in a particular moment. I'm not sure it's a lasting moment. Now, what I do think is that they're going, I don't think that the Iranian leadership or the Chinese leadership or the Russian leadership is ever going to yearn for the United States to restore its position. Uh, I, think it's, I think there is some degree to which certain countries in Asia that are worried about China and certain countries around in Europe that are worried about Russia would like the United States to restore its position and stop being a difficult power to be friends with. Now, I, I would say that is what it ought to be possible for the United States to do. Uh, I know from traveling around Europe there are a lot of people who are fundamentally pro-American who have found it extremely difficult to be pro-American uh, over the past few years. I think it ought to be possible to make it easier to be pro-American. But what I want to dispel is the illusion that there was a time when everybody loved America and we need to get back to the time when everybody's going to love America again. I don't think that was the reality before and I don't think that's something to aspire to. Mm -hmm. I do think the United States should act intelligently, 
not go to war when it shouldn't go to war, not screw up the war when it does go to war. I'm in favor of intelligent foreign policy. But I don't think you're going to see less of the arrogance, the sense of righteousness that we have seen, I think, so consistently throughout America's history. When I hear Democrats talk about American foreign policy, it sounds the same as all, as all, as all the others. Um, can a country lead by example? Sure, in theory it can. I mean, but it's a, it's a, it's a purely theoretical question. Um, the United States, which often has had the rhetoric of leading by example, has never been content merely to lead by example. Uh, the whole notion of the shining city upon the hill, even the Puritans didn't mean that. You know, the Puritans did not, in fact, John Winthrop did not come to the United States to set up a shining city on the hill so that he could then tell the world how to live and meanwhile we would all be alone in here, which is the great American myth. John Winthrop's goal was to, to show how you could do this so that he could then go back to a revolutionized Puritan Europe. Okay, so there was never a moment when we just thought we would be an exemplar to the world. And you could tell that Americans don't count, care about being an exemplar to the world. We didn't spend all the last 200 years counting carefully all the countries that had decided to follow us and decided not to follow us. That's not how measure, Americans measured their success. So it was always a nice idea, and it plays to this notion that Americans love to play to, which is that there's nobody here. We're just minding our own business. You know, We don't want to bother anybody. Yes, over there, right at the end. Do you think that a manifest destiny-infused narrative that sort of leads United States foreign policy, as you've outlined very eloquently, leads to an inevitable overstretch and a decline that you're seeing at the moment and that it can be, in some respects, irreversible? Hmm. That a question, right? I uh, just well, first one, the Spanish-American War. Surely that was a, a war of choice, and in, in that case, the, the 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 blowing up of the USS Maine was the pretext. I mean, I mean, most people think it was, it was an accident, and the, the idea that the Spanish wanted to blow up an American warship in the, the feeble country is, is is completely absurd. But the, the, my main question is, um, would Al Gore have invaded Iraq? That's the key summing up of the whole theoretical. Talk that you've had. Well, no, because I mean I'm, I'm well aware, of course, that Joseph Lieberman, of course, has been has been a 100% supporter, obviously, of Bush Iraq. Of course, we know that. But the thing, I mean, I think Al Gore has been well, vaguely, um, vaguely opposed anyway mm. to, to the Iraq War. Thank you. That's um, a hypothetical question. If you ever have one, but an interesting one. Well, well, I, I love good counterfactual questions because whatever I'm going to say is as plausible as anything else. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, rest, I've thought about that question a lot. Now, the first thing that I would say is, um, even if America has a general thrust in, in its overall direction of foreign policy, that does not necessarily determine whether, whether you go to war or not go to war in any particular instance. Now, that's, that's, in a way, that's a very unsatisfying point because it sure matters a lot to history whether you go to war or you don't go to war. Uh, my basic point, before I answer your very good question, is that it's not as if there is an alternative theory of how American foreign policy should be conducted to the broad direction that, that led to the Iraq war. I am struck, even today, that if you look at the debate that's going on in the United States, especially the mainstream debate, and if you look at the two sets of candidates on both sides that are running, on both Democratic and Republican Party, 
no one is rejecting the fundamental premises that can get you into a war like Iraq. They are saying that war was a mistake, we lied, we lied into war, etc., etc. No one is saying who seriously has a chance of being elected, we should never be in the position where we wind up going to war like that. Uh, I mean, it is rather striking to me how narrow the debate is in the United States. Um, we are, the United States is spending over $500 billion a year on defense now, and it goes up every year. Is there in the 2008 political debate a debate over the defense budget? No. I think that's extraordinary. Now, even in the Vietnam period, when people turned against the Vietnam War, now no one ever was actually able to get elected president on this, but the argument was the problem was not just Vietnam. The problem was the whole approach that America was taking to the world. Containment was the problem. Dean Acheson was the problem. Harry Truman was the problem. American capitalism was the problem. It wasn't just the idiots who got us into Vietnam. Here, today, the debate is pretty much the idiots who got us into Iraq. Not that we shouldn't be involved in the world. Not that we shouldn't use force. Look at the speeches of every Democratic candidate who has any chance of winning on that subject. Okay. Now, Al Gore. It's good old counterfactual history. First of all, you know, I'm sure, that when Gal Gore was vice president, he was the most hawkish person on Iraq in the Clinton administration. He was the one who was most uh, urging military action against Iraq when the Clinton administration did take military action in uh, 1998. He was one of the ones who was most supportive of this resolution that passed the Senate 98-2 to uh, providing $100 million to opposition forces in Iraq for the purpose of overthrowing Saddam Hussein. Now, what if he'd been elected, well, I should say, what if the Supreme Court had allowed him to rightfully win the election that he rightfully won? A, you are right to note that he would have had a vice president who was named Joe Lieberman. B, and this is what I think is an interesting question. I don't know, of course, the answer. If the Democrats had won in 2000, had taken the White House in 2000, then the planning for September 11th and the execution for, of September 11th would have occurred under essentially the same administration. It was enormous favor politically to both Republicans and Democrats that the operation was planned on, and sort of set in place under Clinton and executed under Bush because then they could both do this, which is exactly what they did. Now imagine an Al Gore who cannot do this and who will have on his political plate the fact that it was planned under him and executed under him. I think that anybody who was in the White House on September 11th as President of the United States would have felt this deep sense of failure and responsibility to protect the nation, not to mention the enormous political blowback uh, that would occur by the failure to protect the United States. It is entirely in keeping with American traditions that the United States would in some way lash out and look for somebody to punish for what had happened. It seems to me entirely natural and predictable that what might have been a level of tolerance for people like Saddam Hussein, which was a major problem for the Clinton administration. I mean, it's easy to forget that the Clinton administration went to war with Saddam Hussein. It's not as if the Bush administration invented the Saddam Hussein problem. The Clinton administration had it and ultimately didn't know what to do about it. 
So after September 11th, the tolerance level for people like Saddam Hussein was going to go down anyway. Now, would Al Gore have ordered a war against Saddam Hussein in March, April of 2003? I don't know. Possibly not. But I don't rule out the possibility that because of Saddam Hussein being who he was, and because of Al Gore being in the extremely delicate political situation that he was in, on top of which his natural disposition based on his time in office in the 1990s was to be extremely hostile and worried about Saddam Hussein, that you could have gotten us into war. Now, the only, what's, to me what's important is, aside from the counterfactual aspects, if Al Gore had decided not to go to war, would that have been because he had an entirely different view of how the United States should behave in the world? a completely different ideological approach which would say to him, we are not the kind of country that goes to war against Iraq in this circumstance? Or would it have been that he had just decided that was not a prudent thing to do? My guess is if he decided not to do it, it would have been because as the Clinton administration decided, we would be willing to bomb these guys into the Stone Age for five days, but we're not sending ground troops to Iraq. I think that's the decision the Clinton administration made in 1998. I think that might have been the decision that Al Gore would have made in 2003 or 2002. But does that mean that Al Gore represented an alternative course in American foreign policy? I don't think so. Yes, Professor Tiendo over there first. If you could show your hands when you want to ask a question, it would be easier. Yes, please. So, All right. Yeah. Okay. Actually. Well, yeah. Do you have a mic? The guy with the mic. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, that, there we go. Yeah. You go ahead. <laughs> no, that's, that, no, no, that, no, no, that's no, quite no. all right. Go ahead. Sorry, I was uh, actually going to ask about the metaphor of um, dangerous nation. It, it seems to me more that uh, like the United States was not that unusual prior to World War II compared to, say, the European nations, which were ascendant sort of at that time, like if you look, you know, Napoleonic Wars, colonial era, World War One, World War Two, like you actually see, if anything, a higher degree of military action. And yes, the Americans were expansionist internally, yet at the same time they had a tradition where they didn't like standing armies. Uh, there seems to be a shift after like the devastation of World War Two, where the Europeans basically said we have to stop being dangerous nations, whereas the, the Americans were all of a sudden I don't want to say thrust, but took up a world position where they were expected to be like the arsenal for democracy and basically backing uh, that. And that seems to me to be a major reason behind the fact that a, like the Europeans are relatively peaceful now vis-a-vis -vis the Europeans. But isn't this like fairly recent shift that more has to do with the uh, power political system? And just one more point, like I'm from Canada and I can tell you that it's fairly easy to be like, you know, a peaceful moral nation if you don't wield as much power in the international system. So, <laughs> you know, it's just That's an excellent point. We know that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but it, anyway, the main question is that the dangerous nation, like it really only seems to have kicked in as being unusual for the United States after the role in the Cold War. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Right at the end over there, yes. Thank you. Um, Bob, the, the difficulty here is, I, first of all, I, I, I you know, loved your lecture, and I'm sure I'm going to love the book, which I haven't read yet. Um, and you've already conceded everything, but uh, you, you've already conceded the, that, that what, what might be argued about in, in current policy and political terms 
is very much at the margins. Um, in fact, I guess that's your point. Uh, but it is, the mar- it is at the margins where decisions of war and peace are, are often made. And I guess, I, I guess what I'm trying to press you a little bit um, on, wh- on what I think is your, your implication that there is something character- characterological or something about Americans that will, you know, in six cases out of ten or whatever, take them in a certain direction. Um, you know, the United States as you've written before, is also acts the way it does because it can, because it has power. Maybe it has a sort of impatience and it bred into it, its culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in, in a current case, for example, uh, Americans might be more impatient about an Iranian nuclear capability than, than the average European or the average European leader. But that doesn't really tell you what to do about, you know, the cost benefit of whether it makes sense to, to go to war against Iran. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, are, 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 how much are you trying to prove, I guess, with this, Thank you. With this general argument? Every, everything. You, you wrote a book. To prove everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, these are great questions, as of all the questions have been uh, great questions. You know... I guess I return to the point that the, the decision of, about peace or war it can be an extremely important decision. Uh, my interest is in asking, is the decision made because of different worldviews or is it made on, you know, the grounds that it's politically dangerous? I mean, you know, the Clinton administration went to war in Kosovo, but it didn't want to send ground troops to Kosovo. Is that because the Clinton administration has a worldview about ground troops? Um, you know, and I think the Clinton administration's general view is we're not sending ground troops anywhere after our wonderful experiences in Somalia um, and even something said Haiti. Uh, and so they had an air theory of international relations, you know. Um, does that mean they have a different doctrine of foreign policy than an administration that was willing to send troops? And I mean, I, you're obviously resistant to the idea that the Americans have a characterological tendency to do this. But look, look just look at the post-Cold War record. And by the way, you're right. If America became more frequent in its use of force after the Cold War, it's because it was easier to do it. It was easier because it was less risky because there was no Soviet Union. And it was easier because the technological capabilities made it easier to do it, and you were, America was so far advanced from everybody else. But look, you know, George H.W. Bush sent 30,000 troops to Panama uh, to remove Manuel Noriega. Why? The, the canal was not threatened. He did it because Noriega was a creep. Really. Um, That may be a good reason or bad reason, but that was an exercise of completely unilateral and, by the way, humanitarian intervention by the quintessential realist, allegedly realist president, George H.W. Bush. Um, I just find there's too much coincidence of behavior among very different kinds of people to say that, you know, it's just because we had this particular president in the White House. Yeah, it's probably just because we had this particular president and this particular configuration of, you know, any number of variables that led us into war in Iraq in March 2003. But the possibility of war with Iraq did not depend on those variables. It was inherent to the situation, in my view. Um, and, and that seems to me to be a more pressing reality. Now, we can get into a discussion. Should you do this? Should you do that? That's a different kind of discussion. You and I, as people who are, you know, having policy views, can have a policy debate. 
But if you were to ask me as a predictor of American behavior, I would say, yes, six out of ten times, the United States is going to be more likely to use force than anybody else would, uh, partly because it can, and partly because it has a tradition of doing so that is pretty deeply grounded. And I think that, you know, of course, and getting back to one of the other questions, uh, of course our history has shaped the way we behave. Of course Europe's history in the 20th century is the reason for the Europe that we know today. And as I pointed out in, in my book a few years ago, look how different America's history and experience of war has been. America looks back on most of its wars with, with sort of a general fondness. <laughs> well, it's true. And if you think about the more important wars, let's forget about like losing in Vietnam, and someday we're going to forget about this whole Iraq thing too. Uh, the wars that loom large in the American memory are the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, <laughs> World War I, World War II. Every single one of them depicted in American views, and I think not illegitimately, as, as wars fought primarily for moral and ideological reasons. Uh, which in which America, in which, as Lincoln said, all depends on the progress of our arms. Um, that is a different memory than European. Like, Americans look back on World War II. It was our greatest generation. It was our noble cause. We were the cavalry coming over the hill to save Europe from itself. That's our memory of World War II. <laughs> Europe's memory of World War II is somewhat different. So, you know, these, thing, these, things, these things do matter. Now, you know, on... So you have correctly explained the change in Europe, and you're certainly right that America was more like Europe when Europe was like what Europe used to be. <laughs> okay, But I think you're wrong. And by the way, let me talk about the word dangerous. First of all, how, I, I like the title because it was a provocative title. Sounds good. Well, I would that it sold more. But, anyway. um, but I also, I, I deliberately pulled it from this thing that John Quincy Adams said because I thought, how surprising that John Quincy Adams in 1817 says the world regards the United States as a very dangerous nation. Now, what did dangerous mean? It didn't just mean a proclivity to use force, although it did mean that. I mean, the American reputation after the War of 1812 was not high in Europe. I mean, from the European point of view, that war was completely illegitimate, especially from the British point of view. Hmm. And by the way, we really, 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 really wanted to take Canada in that war. <laughs> And we didn't stop wanting to take Canada until Canadians finally made it really clear that they didn't want to be part of the United States. Okay? But those ambitions were there for a really long time. Um, but it was also the, the dangerousness of the ideology, that, that kind of danger, and the danger generally as a kind of revolutionary state. But, you know... Sometimes you have to be careful. Don't have a. Don't try to impose a 20th century global or 21st century global understanding of the United States on a 19th century America. If you were a Native American, America was real dangerous. If you were a Spaniard, if you were French, if you were Russian in the Northwest, and if you were British, America was dangerous in the sense that you mean. And it's only because we are painting on a somewhat smaller palette then that you know that means we were fundamentally different? I, I don't think so. So, you know, you, I don't want to, I don't like, I mean, I, I have a, a resistance to this desire that Americans have, and now I see Canadians have, to, to view this as hinges where America was once one thing and then everything changed. The normal hinge, I'm only, I'm only kidding. The normal hinge usually is 1898. The normal story of American foreign policies were completely wonderful, delightful people, never mind Mexico, never mind the Indians, until 1898 when the imperialists stole the country and steered it. It's kind of like the neoconservatives, you know? Yeah. They just, these six people 
you know, Henry Cabot Lodge, Brooks Adams, Henry Adams, you know, grabbed the whole country and steered it off in a direction that it never would have gone otherwise. And just like we neo six neoconservatives did on the Iraq War. So, you know, I think that that kind of view is a, is really a classic American attempt to escape the realities of American behavior. Bob, I, I, um, I've come to understand now why our friends, the realists, uh, have turned against you, trying to make <laughs> them unemployed. <laughs> Many good people have spent a whole career trying to teach Americans to behave according to their interests, and you're saying you, they, never will. We have a number of um, lectures dealing with similar topics coming up in um, the spring. In Lent term, we'll both uh, Professor Eric Fauna, who you also quote approvingly in your, in your book, uh, from Columbia University, lecturing here on American freedom. And we will have Professor David Kennedy from Stanford lecturing a little bit later on in the spring. Bob, I want to thank you again very, very much for a wonderfully stimulating lecture, surprising lecture, and for a wonderful book. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you.